Lord, that's our heart tonight. We don't want to hear the opinions of men, but the Word of God. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would speak into our hearts. Father, give us ears to hear what Your Spirit would say to us tonight. Father, none of us are here by, by chance, but Lord, by, as we'll see in tonight's text, by divine appointment, You've drawn us together for a reason, Lord, to hear from You. So Father, we ask in Jesus' name, in humility and in brokenness before You, that You'd move in a mighty and a powerful way, that Your name would be magnified, that Your people would be touched. We ask these things in Your holy and Your precious name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Great to see you on a Wednesday night. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Hey, I do want to encourage you, because I know there's a huge need, but I don't know that there was a necessarily a huge response on Sunday, because we just kind of just dropped it on you. But the crown financial thing, let me encourage you with that. Get a biblical perspective on, on just your resources. I know, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what, I listen to a radio program, it's fantastic, and if there was any way I could take the class right now, I would. So let me just encourage you to be praying about getting involved in that. I know you'll be blessed. And then be praying for Pastor Joe and my dad. They're at GFA headquarters in Dallas, Texas this week. And they're uh, doing some training there so they too can go to India at some point. So be praying for them. I know they're blessed. Well, let's uh, go ahead and review here real quickly to catch us up to chapter 9. And 1 Samuel again began with the children of Israel all doing what was right in their own eyes. They were getting caught up. They got caught up in pagan idolatry. There was no judge in Israel. There was corruption in the priesthood. Remember Eli had gone complacent. His own sons were just fleecing the people, stealing from them. There was sexual immorality within the the, uh, tabernacle itself. And in the midst of all that, this woman Hannah came along. She gave birth to a son, Samuel. Only after she came to a place of being at the end of herself, cried out to the Lord. And someone crying out to God was so foreign that Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk. But God answered her prayer when he was a very young child, as soon as he was weaned, so I don't know how old that is, but pretty young. And he was brought, and he was put into the care of Eli. Now we know that God spoke, and Samuel heard him, but Eli could not. God was speaking, and this little boy could hear, but Eli could not. I think that's interesting, we'll look at that some more in tonight's text. But eventually we know that the corruption got worse and finally they went out into battle against the Philistines and because God was no longer with them, they had abandoned God, they were defeated soundly. Then they tried to force the hand of God and they took the ark out into battle with them and if you'll recall, they were destroyed. They lost the battle. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's wicked sons who were serving as priests, died. Eli, on news that the ark had been taken, fell over and died. The ark was then captured by the Philistines who had it for a while. It became a curse to them, a hot potato, if you will. They kept passing it from city to city because everywhere it went, it brought a curse. They finally returned it to Israel. And then Israel, praise God, after Beth Shemesh messed up and opened up the ark and looked inside and had 50,000 people die, they then moved it on from there to Kirjath-Jerim. And as we saw in chapter 7, there was revival in Israel. Revival finally came to Israel in the midst of their ungodliness. And how did revival come? We talked about this a few weeks ago. In chapter 7, a recipe for revival. They put God back in his proper place. You know, some of you are here right now and God is either not that important to you or he's not important enough to you. Amen? And he needs to be the, the priority in our life. 
He's above everything else. No matter what is the passion of your life, the Lord must take its place. Now, I want to say this. It's not a no-fun bummer to put God first. Amen? It's not like you're losing anything. It brings a greater joy. It doesn't mean we can't still enjoy life. But Jesus said He came that we might have life and life more abundant. And that's God's desire. But the recipe for revival was putting God back in His proper place, crying out with hearts of confession, putting away all their false idols, denying their flesh, having fervent prayer, seeking godly counsel, you know, reinstating the sacrifices, because without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. And all that was great, and God was ruling and reigning among them yet again. And then if you'll remember what happened. It didn't take very long, and as we saw last week, they fell right back into their own old sinful ways again. If you were here last week, the title of the message was Falling Away from God. And they did indeed. They just fell away from the Lord, and they fell away by again getting their priorities off. It's amazing how when we have God on the throne and God's doing great things, how easily we can walk away and get away from the Lord. So how did that happen? Well, there were several things that happened. Number one, they began to look to men instead of to God. Here's a huge mistake that we can make. Getting our eyes on men and off of God. You start falling away from the Lord as soon as you do that. And the ways you can do that, you can start elevating men where they don't belong. Guys, you should not edify a man. We only edify the Lord. Amen? Only lift up His name. Now, there are people that God puts in authority over us that we are to respect, but we worship none of them. And I've shared with you many times that as a pastor, it's a scary thought to ever think about, you know, falling. And my prayer is I'd rather die than fall. But my prayer would also be that you guys would not be putting your faith in any man, including your pastor, to the point where if I fell, it made you fall. Amen? Amen. Should not be that way. We should, we should not put anybody on a pedestal. Also, they not only looked to men instead of to the Lord, they began to look to the world for direction. They started following the world's example instead of following the Word of God. And that's an exhortation to us as well. Then they began to disregard the Word, and then finally they demanded their own will. They wanted their will instead of God's will. And so that's how we ended the previous chapter. And as we come to chapter 9 tonight, we're going to begin to transition, we are going to transition from Samuel to Saul. So far, we've been looking at the life of Samuel. Samuel will continue on in the book, but we're going to see the transition begin where Saul is now going to be raised up as the king in Israel. And if you remember how the last chapter ended, they were demanding a king. And remember, why did they want a king? Who remembers? Because everybody else had one. They said, you know what, everybody else has a king, we want a king. Now remember, every time they'd gone to battle with the Lord, they'd won a mighty battle. They defeated the Egyptian army, potentially the greatest army on the planet, wiped them out, came into Canaan. They knocked the, the walls of Jericho fell down without them firing one arrow or throwing one spear. Because God was on their side. But sadly what happens is that we can start to look at the world and stop trusting in God. And what happened was they said, well, all the world has a king, we want a king. Well, that the Lord told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They're putting man, they want a man to follow after. And then he warned them. If you'll remember last week, he said, if you can have a man for a king, but here's what he's going to do. He's going to enslave your family. He's going to take everything from you. He's going to take your daughters and your sons. And by the time it's over, he's going to have you in such deep bondage, you're going to cry out to be delivered and say, don't have this king anymore. And then the people, the very next verse said, give us a king anyway. Because that's what we do. We, we don't really believe what God's word says sometimes. God warns us and we go, well, yeah, that applies to other people, but not me so much. And so we just do it anyway. And then we're surprised when the consequences come. 
So, as we discussed during the last few weeks' messages, sometimes the worst thing in the world that God, the worst thing in the world God can do to us is give us what we ask for. We ask him, we ask him, we tell him we want it. He says, That's, if, I, if you do it, it's going to be bad. I don't care, I want it anyway. Well, yeah, I know he's not saved, I want him anyway. I know she doesn't know the Lord. Yeah, I know that that promotion will take my time away from my family, but I've got to make the money. And we just make these decisions that are contrary to the word of God, and we want to force God to give it to us, and eventually, God will let you have it. And sometimes the worst thing that can happen is God lets us have it. And so they've been warned of all the consequences. They still wanted their own way. And sometimes when we go our own way and God gives us what we want, it seems like it goes okay for a while. You ever notice that? Sometimes you go your own way and it seems to be going okay for a little while. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. And so sometimes it looks like, hey, God says it's okay. By the way, God's grace is not equal God's permission. Amen? Because God has been gracious toward you doesn't mean he's giving you permission to continue on that sinful behavior. And as we're going to see tonight, when they raise up Saul, it's going to look okay for a while. The next few chapters, he's going to be the guy they were looking for. But in the end, the consequences will come. Disobedience to God's word will always result in heavy-duty consequences. So in tonight's text, God is going to begin the process of giving Israel exactly what they want. Saul will indeed be exactly what the world would look for in a king. From all the outward appearances in the world, this guy's got it going on, as you're going to see. He's a man's man to the nth degree. He, I mean, when we look at this description of this guy, you're going to say, give me a guy like that for president. You know, give me a guy like that. If you're single, oh, man, I want to find a guy like that. Because he seems like he's got it all going on. But the Bible tells us that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And though he had it going on outwardly, he was a man of great inward flaws. He was a man of outward strength who lacked inward character. He was a man who, did not only appeal, who, who would not only appeal to Israel thousands of years ago, but would appeal to us today. So, title of the message is, Man Looks on the Outward Appearance, but God Looks on the Heart. And at first glance, Saul seems again to be that guy. But let's take note of some outward appearances that can so enamor us that we're going to miss out on inward character. The world today emphasizes outward appearance when we ought to be emphasizing inward character. We're more worried about what we look like than who we are in, on the inside. We're more worried, you know, a guy will get blown out of an election because he stutters. He's, oh, he misspoke, oh forget it, get him out of there. But you can have a president that's committing adultery and it's not a big deal because he's eloquent. We've missed it. Amen? We've got our priorities all messed up. So, if you're taking notes, man looks on the outward appearance. Outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character. Number one, a man of wealth, good looks, and stature. You know what? We see someone who's really good looking and very charismatic, and before you know it, we can overlook the fact that they're lacking in godly character. These are all descriptions that we're going to see in the text tonight of Saul, and then I'll give you what the truth about him when we're done. Number two, a man who appears to obey and care for his father. You know, from the outward appearance, this guy looks like a really respectful young man toward his father, but we're going to see the truth about him. Number three, a man who appears to both respect and honor and seek out God's direction. Again, from the outward appearance, it looks like he wants to do God's will, but as we go through the text and as we Look in light of the man he becomes in later chapters. We'll see that he's not a man of God at all. Number four, a man who appears to have God's hand upon him. 
Again, just because he's part of God's plan doesn't mean he's God's man. Just because God will use someone for a while doesn't mean they're God's man. And we're going to see that in tonight's text. Number five, a man who appears to be humble. You know, the truth is not revealed in our words, but in our actions. We can pretend to be humble. False humility is all around us. But real humility is seen not in words, but in actions. We'll see that tonight. And it'll help us. We'll miss godly, we'll miss a the lacking of character with false humility all day long. And then lastly, a man who appears to have respect for the Word of God. But we're going to see that respect for the Word of God is really ultimately played out in obedience to the Word of God. Amen? So a man of wealth, good looks, stature, who obeys and respects his father, who seeks out godly direction, who has God's hand upon him, is humble and respects the Word of God. Man, who wouldn't want that guy for a king? Right? Wow! Make that guy president. A man of wealth, good looks, stature, who obeys and respects his father, who seeks out godly direction, who has God's hand upon him, is humble and respects the word of God. That's the appearance he's going to give off. But truly, his character is going to tell us so much different. Saul is an example of why we must not look only for a moment at the outward appearance, but take time to get to know someone's inward character. That's why the Bible says, lay hands on no man quickly. Anybody can look good for a month. Amen? Even a year. Lay hands on no man quickly. That's why we must never allow outward appearances to supersede inward character. So let's begin. A man looks on the outward appearance, and now we're going to first look again at the, the outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character. And let's begin by seeing that he's a man of wealth, good looks, and stature. Look at what it says there in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacharoth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite. Now, a Benjamite. We're going to see in a moment, of course, he's describing Saul. This is Kish, the father of Saul. And what does it mean to be a Benjamite? Well, let's talk about the Benjamites because Saul was a Benjamite. Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob or Israel, which was what became his name. And Benjamin was his youngest son, and Benjamin's mother, Rachel, died giving birth to him. If you'll recall, she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And his father, who loved him greatly, changed his name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Benjamin was special in the eyes of Jacob. It is interesting that he he was born on the outskirts of where? Bethlehem. And it's interesting that his name, Benjamin, son of my right hand, and son of sorrow, again, both representations are pictures of Jesus. But in Judges 20, something happened with the Benjamites, if you were here, and they became just so incredibly wicked. If you remember what happened, that there was a, a rape and an abuse and a murder of a man's concubine in Gibeah, which is part of Benja- where the Benjamites dwelt, and they came to them, the people of Israel came to them upon hearing what had been done to her and wanted them to just give up the men who had done it, and the Benjamites would not do it, and they defended them, and all of Israel fought against the Benjamites, and every Benjamite that held a sword died, 25,100 of them. They had to go to other tribes to find women, and they had to steal the women from the other tribes because the other tribes would not give them women to marry because they didn't think the Benjamites should go on. So the Benjamites were actually a tribe that was known much more for being mighty warriors than they were for being spiritually mature. So it's not surprising to me to find that the king 
that would fit the bill of what the people wanted would be a man out of that tribe. A tribe of mighty warriors, but men who were not spiritually mature. It says there, a Benjamite, a man of mighty power. The word power there in Hebrew means great wealth, substance, and influence. So Saul's father was a man of wealth, substance, and influence. So right off the bat, the first thing we learn about this man is he was wealthy. Isn't it interesting that there's nothing new under the sun? Because how many politicians do you see today that are poor? Most of them come from very wealthy families, have very wealthy backgrounds, have a lot of money behind them. And nothing is new. This guy was a wealthy guy, so he probably dressed well. And as we're going to see, that he was really handsome. So from the world's perspective, this guy had a great background. And again, the Lord is going to be the one to raise him up. But don't be confused. He's raising up what the people have asked for. He's not giving them his man. He's giving them their man. He's giving them what they asked for. They begged for it, they asked for it, they pleaded for it, and they demanded it of God. They were warned about it, they said, give it to us anyway. And God says, okay, let me give you the man you've asked for. Verse 2, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Saul was not only wealthy, not only was his family of wealth and influence, but he was known for his appearance. Choice and handsome means good looking, and I looked it up, well shaped, it says. Yoked. Okay? Guy had muscles. The guy was big. The guy was yoked. The guy was good looking. And he was built. And he, you know, he was a man's man, like I said. So he came from a wealthy family. He was a good looking guy. And he was in great shape. Now it says this there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. He was the most handsome person. Now, I find it interesting. It doesn't say most handsome man. It says most handsome person, which means he was better looking than all the women, too. (laughs) This is a good-looking guy. And again, isn't that what the world is attracted to? And so this guy was a really good-looking guy. He was in great shape. His family was wealthy. He was the best-looking guy, period. And then look what else it says about him. And it says, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. Now, not only the best looking, but head and shoulders above everyone in height. So he had to probably be at least seven feet tall. So he was seven feet tall, the best looking person going. He was in great shape. His family was really wealthy. Man, do you think that they, people might vote for this guy? This is the world we live in today. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. This is the kind of king that a man would want. He's got it going on. He's big, he's yoked, he's in good shape. Now it's interesting, it says there, what does it say that his name was? His name was Saul. Saul means requested or asked of God. I find that interesting. Again, the sovereignty of God before the foundation of the world, it was God's plan that his name was going to be Saul because God knew this was the man they were going to ask for. And he's giving them exactly what they've asked for. Now, it happens in all areas of life, but where I see this so often is in relationships. Where we meet somebody, we think we're compatible with them, and they're really good looking. They're Saul-like. Oh man, she's fine. Oh man, he's good looking. And because of that, we start making excuses and giving reasons why, just maybe it's okay with God if I go out with them. But, but they go to church sometimes. But they believe that there is a God. Well, thanks a lot. Well, that helps out. But here's the point. 
You want someone who loves God more than you do. Amen? Someone who's on fire for God, passionate for God, sold out for God. Don't compromise, especially in this area. Amen? But we see here that Saul was this good-looking guy. He had everything from the world's perspective, and he was the man they had asked for. In 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel had rejected the Lord God as king over Israel because they wanted a king like all the surrounding nations, but what they really wanted was the image of a king because it gave you know, them substance of something they could look at and, and look to. And that was exactly the type of king they wanted, and this was the king that came out of central casting, man. This guy could have starred in the movies. He was the guy. And nobody would question. So God is giving Israel the kind of leader they wanted and deserved. A man who could not match the size, who could, in their mind, match the size of their giant enemies. If you remember, the Philistines had many giants among them. There were giants in the land, remember? And so this guy's roughly seven feet tall, just a guesstimate. So if you've got a seven foot tall guy who's yoked and good looking, hey... There's our king. That's the guy that we want. So too, when we look for security in the things of this world, we seek comfort apart from the comforter. We seek peace apart from the prince of peace. When we're being led by the flesh, we will choose things according to the flesh. And the world today is far more concerned with looks and charisma than character. So man looks on the outward appearance, outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character, being wealthy, good-looking, of great stature, head and shoulders above everybody else. Point number two, not only was he good-looking and wealthy and had great stature and was built right and had all the things going on from the world's perspective, he's a man who appears to obey and care for his father. Now, I think it's important that we do reflect character in the way children treat their parents. You learn a lot about someone by the way they treat their parents. And certainly you would look at this guy from an outward appearance and think in these next few verses that he is such a man. Look what it says in verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, by the way, we're going to see that the donkeys, like the cows, seem to be the most obedient people, or they're not people, most obedient examples, let's say that. You know, the cows a few chapters back were the ones that went in the right direction when everybody else was doing wrong. Now it's going to be the donkeys that God uses. And I love that he uses donkeys. And if you have Old King James, it says something else, right? So obeys his father's request. Now look what it says here. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So these donkeys were lost. But we're going to see that God had lost donkeys that he was going to use to bring Saul where he wanted him to be. Sometimes we, re- we need to just remember yet again that whatever's happening in life, that God is in control. And what we see as a happenstance circumstance is not that at all. God knows what he's doing. And these lost donkeys were not lost. God had just taken them where he wanted Saul to follow. And our God can do that. He's great enough. So it says there, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, Please take one of the servants with you, and arise and go, and look for the donkeys. Now, I want to say this. This does not sound like a good thing, a fun trip for me. Go look for some donkeys. How fun does that sound? Now, donkeys were valuable in those days, but I must admit, I find it a bit humorous that Israel's king of choice is out looking for donkeys while they're looking for a king. He's looking for donkeys, and in my opinion, they're going to get a donkey for a king. And I think that God's got a sense of humor because he's out looking for donkeys. You and I have no idea what seemingly, you know, 
normal and even annoying circumstances of life, God's going to use in His sovereign will. And we're not floating along haphazardly through life, you guys. God has a clear direction for us, bringing divine appointments into our path every single day. Look at verse 4. So they go out looking for the donkeys. So they passed through the mountains of Ephraim, through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. So, this must have been frustrating. Imagine looking for donkeys and spending days doing it. Maybe even weeks. We know later they're going to say they didn't have any food left, so they've been out a long time looking for these donkeys. And some of the areas they're going through are really hilly and mountainous areas. Can you imagine sweat pouring from their brows? And they're walking around looking for some donkeys. Not again what you would consider a fun trip, but it would seem from the outward appearance that this guy's being obedient to his father. What a godly young man. What a respectful young man. What a man of, young man of character. But the donkeys, again, were the ones that were really being led away because God had a plan for what he wanted to do with young Saul. The seemingly random search, this mundane activity is all part of God's plan. Look at verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. What a sweet young son. He's worried now that his dad is worrying. So he says, well, let's go home because dad's worrying and I don't want dad to be worried. So we should go home now. Sounds like a godly young man. But you know what I believe? I believe this good-looking, wealthy, tall, well-built, obedient, quote, caring and sensitive, seems like the dream man of, of every woman, the dream son of every parent. But we're going to see in coming chapters that there's more to this man than meets the eye. Because ultimately what I believe is he was a man who did not know how to lead. He was called to be the king and he had not a clue how to lead. And he didn't have a clue how to lead because he didn't have God's hand on him. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon him for a time when we get in future chapters and we're going to see God use him. But it's going to be in spite of him, not because of him. And so, man looks on the outward appearance, outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character, wealth, good looks and stature. The appearance of being obedient and caring for his father. Again, I'll give the contrast to those when we're done at the end. Number three, a man who appears to both respect, honor, and seek out God's direction. Who wouldn't want someone like that being in charge? Man, I pray that that's our leaders, amen? Men who seek the Lord. Men who fall on their face before God. Men and women who seek the Lord. But look what it says, verse 6. And he said to him, look now, there is a city... A man of God, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. Now who is saying this? This is the servant responding to Saul who says, let's go home. We can't find the donkeys, let's get out of here. Then a servant says, hey, there's a city nearby and there's a man of God there, an honorable man. Now I love this because who is he talking about? He's talking about Samuel. And I love that that's Samuel's reputation. And I love that when someone talks about Samuel... Even if he didn't even know his name, the way he talks about him is he's a man of God and he's an honorable man. Now, why did they want to go to this man of God? To make sacrifice, to worship the Lord? Why did they go there? Well, we'll see in a moment. I do want to ask you this question, though. When people thought of Samuel, they thought of an honorable man and a man of God. When people think of you, what do they think of? When people think of you, 
what do they think of? When they are looking for a man or woman of God, would anyone ever come to you for counsel? Would anyone ever come to you for prayer? Guys, can I encourage you? Live a light so on fire for God and so bold for Him that one of two things will happen with the people around you. They will ridicule you and want nothing to do with you, or they will come to you for godly counsel. Amen? Now, again, be salt and light. Let's do it in love. Let's not be abrasive. Some people say, I'm being persecuted for my faith. They go, no, dude, you're just being a jerk. You need to stop it, okay? Sometimes it's just you're being brutal. Don't do that. Love people. But you know what? Everybody at work ought to know you're saved. Everybody in your neighborhood ought to know you're saved. Amen? Let's not hide our light under a bushel. So here we know this about Samuel. Here's the reputation that he has. But I want you to notice something. The servant knew about Samuel, but we're going to find that Saul knew nothing about him. And that tells me a lot about Saul. Because Samuel was God's man in all of Israel. Samuel was traveling around throughout Israel, and the place where Saul lived was only five miles away from where Samuel lived. And as we get later in the text, he doesn't even know who Samuel is. What does that tell you about where this guy is spiritually? That tells me he's not coming up at the time of feast. That tells me he's not making sacrifice. That tells me he's not living like a godly man because he doesn't even know who Samuel is. But yet, the servant does. And then look what he says. All that he says surely comes to pass. What a reputation. When Samuel says something, it happens. Why? Because he's God's man. And then it says, so let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Now, why are they going to Samuel? To find the donkeys. Let's go ask Samuel. Maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are. Now, I'm thinking if I'm going to inquire of the Lord, finding the donkeys probably not tops on the list. Now, again, they were of value. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray to God about everything because we should. I'll just give you some examples. You know, I had lost my car keys. And they were gone. And I mean, to replace the key, this key on my ring is next to them. I have to tow the car in. They have to take the chip out of the thing. They keep, oh, and, you know. And I'm like, what a disaster. So literally, I'd ha- I'm like, what am I going to do? I've got to go, the- and I have no way to get around. And I literally, in the middle of the night, I just prayed and said, Lord, this is a small thing to you. Where are my keys? <laughs> Lord, can you just show me where my keys are? And can I tell you that as I was laying there, he brought to mind a jacket that I have hanging in the closet. I got up out of my bed, walked over to the jacket, reached in the pocket, and there were my keys. And I've been looking for them for three days. I'd offer my kids 20 bucks if they could find them. And I thought, should have prayed three days ago. <laughs> so again, I'm not saying we don't pray, but we should pray. But you know, because what, what's great about it is, who cares about the keys? It just shows how in control God is of everything. Amen? He cares about every detail. I, I get, I'm like, God, you rock. You know what I mean? <laughs> what an awesome God. But here's the point. Again, the donkeys are fine. But Saul has other problems in his life greater than finding those donkeys. But yet he's going to come, and they're coming because they want to be shown away. I almost imagine him coming like, you know, treating, him, treating Samuel like the magic eight ball. Remember the magic eight ball when you were a kid? Should I go? Maybe. Right, you shake that. Okay, Samuel, where's the donkeys? You know what I mean? Instead of coming humbly, instead of coming to make sacrifice, I think they're coming with the wrong attitude. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring this man? 
For the bread in our vessels is all gone. Again, they've been out a long time. They're out of food. There is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? So what do we have to bring this man? In those days, it was common when you came to make sacrifice or you came to inquire of the man of God. Again, nothing major. It wasn't like they were paying you know, for godly counsel, but they would bring him a loaf of bread or they'd bring him something small to minister to his needs. And so Saul knew enough to know that's what you should do, so he said, well, we don't have anything. What are we going to do? What are we going to bring up to this man? And again, I want to make sure you clear it was not a fee that was uh, expected, but again, it was tradition, a way of coming and, and blessing and ministering the person in the ministry. Verse 8, And the servant answered Saul and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Now I find it interesting, again, this, in a fourth of a shekel was a pretty modest amount, or just a token of respect. And I do find it interesting that while Saul was ready to go home, it was Saul's servant who both suggested that they go seek the prophet and the one that brought the offering. Saul's saying, let's go home, and the other guy's going, well, let's go ask the man of God. Oh, and you don't have any money. Now, remember, this is his servant. Saul is a very wealthy man, and Saul has nothing to give him, but yet the servant does. What a picture, again, of people that are just unprepared, don't come seeking God, or just, I don't see any leadership. Who's leading here? The servant. Oh, we should go see the guy. Well, okay, well, y'all don't have anything to give him. Well, I got something. All right. Not so much of a king right about now. Man, you're good looking, but you're dumb as a you know, bag of rocks, right? Dude, what's up with you? Now look what it says here. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, saying, Come, let us go to the seer. For he is now called a prophet who was formerly called the seer. So the author of this portion of the text writes in this information to update us. I believe it was Samuel. He writes in to update us to let us know that referring to him as a seer is the way the world would refer to a prophet. The world saw them as seers because that's what the, the pagans saw those people as, as seers, but really they're prophets. The fact that they refer to him as a seer tells me where they are spiritually. Because if they were walking with God, they would have referred to him as a prophet. So again, you really need to dig into the Word of God because we're starting to pick things out. He doesn't know who Samuel is. He's calling him a seer. He doesn't quite get it. He want... Again, we're learning quickly about the character of this man when you go down into the surface a little bit and examine who this man, are, who this man was. A reflection on Saul and his servant's true spiritual state. Now look at verse 10. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come let us go. So they went, okay, you got the money? All right, let's go. I got nothing. I'm supposed to, you know, the coming king. I got nothing. I don't know where I'm going. I got lost donkeys. I want to go home. <laughs> Servant's like, let's go. To, okay. So again, this guy easily led, but doesn't take the lead. Then Saul said to his servant, well said, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul initially was never an initiator of seeking godly counsel, but in the beginning, we're going to see in the coming chapters that when godly counsel comes, he does at least listen to it. At least for a while, he will. But again, that's why we should not jump to conclusions. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. We lay hands on no man quickly because anybody can pretend to be something that they are not for a little while. Guys, if you're here tonight pretending to be a Christian, let me tell you something. You're going to stand before Almighty God one day and you may have fooled us all, but you won't fool Him. And it's important that you don't know about him, but that you know him. 
He loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you. And the reason that your life is not what it should be is because you don't know the one who created you. There's a big God-shaped vacuum. There's something missing. And what's missing is not a relationship. It's not more money. It's not sex. It's not drugs. It's, not, it's nothing else. What's missing is Jesus. And you can fit everything else you want in there, but you'll never have peace until you know Him. And we see here that these guys are coming, and praise God that at least initially he listens to godly counsel, but as we're going to see later on, that Saul's true character falls way short of the man that he may appear to be on the outward. Saul taking no lead, but being led by his servant, taking no spiritual initiative, but responding when it's brought to him early on. Verse 11, as they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water. And said to them, is the seer, again, not the prophet, is the seer here? And they answered them and said, yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city, because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. Now, previously the high places have been the place where they made sacrifices to the pagan gods. But remember, the tabernacle was wiped out. And now the ark is in Kirjath-Jerim, and so now... They would come into the city, and they would go into the place. So they meet some women, some young women, as they're coming along the way. And it's interesting, many ancient writers said that the reason these women, as you're going to see, four verses full of helpful, that the reason they were so helpful is because Saul was so good looking. Well, what do you need? How can I help you? What can I do for you? Seven feet tall, better looking than all the men and women in the land. He got some attention. But you know what? We're going to see again, he was not a man of character. It says in verse 12 there, for today he came to this city. Now, was it by chance that they showed up at the same time Samuel did? This was all part of God's plan. He's not God's man, but he's still part of God's plan. He's part of God's plan because he's giving the children of Israel what they asked for. And so sometimes we think, well, look, it just fit too perfectly. God must be in it. Uh, Not so much. Because if it's contrary to the word of God, it fitting together perfectly could be God just allowing you to have what you've been asking for. So don't blame it on God and don't try to manipulate the word of God because the circumstances just seem so smooth. Satan has a way of smoothing out the road when you're heading in his direction. Amen? So may we not confuse those things. So Saul and his servant come there looking for donkeys on the very day that Samuel had showed up. They're looking for donkeys. They're going to meet a man of God. Look at verse 13. As soon as you come into the city, these are the women, young women speaking still, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up for about this time you will find him. Now, I love this. The young women are educating Saul and his servant. People would not eat until after the food had been blessed. Well, that's a good example. Amen? They would bless the food first, and then they would eat. And if the prophet hadn't come yet, they would wait. Now, what's interesting about this is that Samuel forgets this lesson. Because when you get to chapter 13, he's won a few battles, and the armies of the Philistines are mounting up on the other side of the way, and he's supposed to wait until Samuel comes and offers sacrifice before he goes out into battle, but he decides the enemy's getting too big too fast, so he decides, well, I can just be the high priest for a minute, 
And he went in and made the sacrifice himself, and from that point forward, downhill. He should have listened to these young women. They said, they wait until the food is blessed before they eat. And you know what? He's going to know that he should wait before he goes into battle. But you know what? It's amazing that a little success turns humility into pride really quick if we don't keep our eyes on God. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Samuel. Samuel's downfall is going to begin later where he misses out on these very instructions. So now therefore go up for it is time and you will find him. Verse 14. So they went up to the city. And as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, do you think that's by chance? That was like a weak answer pretty much. Are you napping? Hello, wake up. Okay. Was it by chance that Samuel was walking out and they were walking at the same time? What's the answer? First of all, when they say is that by chance, it's never that case because God's in control. Amen? All right. So he's walk, they're walking in. He's walking out. They run face to face into each other. How did that happen? God had a plan. It was all. They were looking for donkeys. But God had something greater that he wanted to do with their life. God used wayward donkeys and Saul's servant and some helpful young women to get him to this spot at this very moment, right? He wanted to go home. He would have missed it. So God used his servant. He didn't have any money, so God gave his servant, had his servant had the money. He didn't, he didn't know where to go when he got there, so God brought some young women, and they told him where to go. And now he's at that spot at that moment. And as we're going to see, God has been preparing Samuel's heart as well. So man looks on the outward appearance, outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character, a man of wealth and good looks and stature, a man who appears to obey and care for his father, a man who appears to respect, honor, and seek out godly direction. I'll give you the, con- the, the truth about those when we get to the end. Now, look at verse 15. Now, the Lord told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came. You notice how God is always preparing both sides? Sometimes you think you're going out and God moves on your heart to minister to somebody, but the truth is that as God's preparing your heart to minister to them, God's preparing their heart to be ministered to. Amen? And the other way around, where you're struggling, and God's preparing your heart to be ministered to, God's preparing the heart of someone else to minister to you. That's the way our God works. So as He's using the donkeys and the servant and the young women to get Saul where he needed to be, He's already been talking to Samuel the day before, preparing him that He's coming. And it says He speaks to him in His ears. You know what I believe that means? He spoke to him in His ear. I believe it means he spoke out loud. Okay, Samuel. Because remember, when Samuel was a young child, did he not hear the Lord's voice audibly? Yes, he did. I think he still is. So here he is, and you imagine, whatever Samuel's doing, the Lord says, Samuel, yes, Lord. Uh, Tomorrow, right about this time, there's going to be a man, a Benjamite, come up here. And I'm going to have you anoint him. He's going to be the next king over Israel. Samuel, okay. I mean, what do you say when God tells you something? Yes, Lord. That's always the right answer. Oh, yes, Lord. Okay. Yeah. Works for me, Lord. Okay. Now remember, Samuel was already grieved when he saw what they did, but he knew that God had a plan. So the fourth thing we see is a man who appears to have God's hand upon him. 
So now the Lord's speaking to Samuel about this man. God spoke to him in his ear. He makes, again, this audible voice. He gives him specific instructions. And look what he says there in verse 16. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. Now, there's clear direction from one who walked with him. But notice the difference. How does God speak to Samuel? He talks to him. How does he give direction to Saul who doesn't know him? He loses some donkeys. You know, isn't it amazing? When someone doesn't know God, God will use circumstance, but God can just speak directly to those who are his. Guys, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He's talking all day long. If we don't hear him, we're not listening. We need to hear that still, small voice. When we have a relationship with him, he doesn't have to use donkeys. Amen? He can just speak right to us. And that's good. Now, God, again, can use circumstances if He wants to. But praise God that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So it says there, now, some people struggle with my people from the hand of... He's going to use this guy for a minute. For a few years, He is. Because God will, in spite of us, use us sometimes. And God will use even ungodly men. God will use men. He even pours out His Spirit upon Saul for a while until he rebels against God. He's going to give Saul an opportunity to walk with the Lord because he's a gracious God. But Saul's character is going to shine through in the end. And we're going to see the man that he really is. It says there in verse 17, So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man who I spoke to you. This is the one who will reign over my people. You know what I love about this? Samuel was just going about his business. He was going up to the high place to make sacrifice. And even though God had told him something was going to happen, he wasn't trying to make it happen. And I like that. Because in the kingdom of God, we should not be striving. We should just be walking with the Lord. Amen? We don't have to knock walls down to make stuff happen. We can just be busy about God's work, and when He brings that person into our path, recognize it. Lord, open my eyes that I don't miss those divine appointments. He didn't try to manipulate a fence to bring about God's will. As He simply obeyed God, God brought Saul to Him. It says in verse 18, and again, He's going to save the people from the Philistines. Again, words hard for us to understand. But know that God, even though His people are in rebellion, He's still their God and He still loves them. Verse 18. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Who's Saul talking to? Samuel. And he asked him, Dude, where's the seer? Now first of all, you should be looking for the prophet, not the seer. Second of all, you're talking to him. And if you'd ever been to church, you'd know who the pastor was. Right? I'm, what I'm saying is he's never been to sacrifice. He's ne- you know, here's Samuel, the traveling prophet and preacher, who's going around ministering to the people, and this guy has no idea who he is, and he lives only five miles away. This tells me something about Saul. This guy's not grounded when he doesn't even know who the man is. So please tell me, where is the seer's house? It reflects his spiritual ignorance, again, of someone who was so nearby. And look what it says. And again, we see grace in Samuel's response. Samuel says to him, I am the seer. He doesn't say, I am the prophet. He meets the guy at the place where he is. And he responds to him in what he is looking for. And he says, go up before me to the high place 
for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. Now, if the prophet says that to you, that can be good or bad. By the way, I'm glad you're here. We're going to have dinner together, and then I'm going to tell you everything that's in your heart. Uh, I don't know if I like that. Now, if you're walking with the Lord, that's good. Amen? But if you're in total rebellion against God, not so much. Now, how many of you would like it if we videoed, if we came up to you right now and said, by the way, we had a private detective follow you for the last week. And we videotaped everything you did, and we mounted cameras in your house. And we got your interaction with your wife and your kids and your coworkers, and we're going to play that now. Now, some of you go, okay, and some of you would run for the exit. Oh, no, 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 not this week. That was not a good week. Three weeks ago, it would have been not this, no. But here he is, this man, saying to him, I'm going to tell you everything that's in your heart. Wow, I was coming looking for donkeys. Now I'm having dinner with a prophet or seer in his mind. How in the world is that going to happen? I'm going to tell you all that's in your heart. Again, Saul must have been taken back a bit. God's man was going to reveal what was in his heart. Verse 20. Now just to make sure he knows that he is indeed the prophet or seer in his mind, he's now going to answer a question that he hasn't asked yet. And I love when Jesus does that. In the New Testament, Jesus does that all the time. He answers people's thoughts. I'm thinking that should be enough right there. Repentance should follow immediately, every time. And it says, and he responded to what they were thinking and told them, and they'd be like, oh, you're God, that's it. Game over, right? But look what happens, verse 20. But as for your donkeys, did he ask him about the donkeys? Not yet. But as for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago, but do not be anxious for them, for they have been found. And on whom all is, now, and it says, on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? What? By the way, your donkeys have been found, and by the way, the, the entire heart, the entire future of Israel rests on you. Now again, he could refute that, but he just told them about the donkeys he didn't even ask about. So he's realizing, this guy probably knows some stuff. Because he told me about donkeys, and now he's telling me that I'm going to be the one in whom all of Israel's future rests upon. I'm the one that their, their future and their hopes rest upon me. What you, I'm just out here looking for donkeys. I didn't even have anything to give the guy when he got here. If it hadn't been for the servant and the young women down the road, I wouldn't have even found this place. And now I'm going to be the guy? You know what? It's going to appear like he begins with a heart of humility. Man looks on the outward appearance, outward characteristics that can hide the lack of inward character. Number five, a man who appears to be humble. Again, we can appear humble. But again, man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. Look what it says in verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? Now this reminded me of Gideon. Gideon, back in Judges 6, says, Oh my Lord, how shall I save Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But here's the difference. Gideon was accurate. What did we learn about Saul at the beginning of the chapter? His family was what? Very wealthy. He was a man of mighty power, his father. So when he's saying this, it could be a sign of humility, but it's also a sign of insincerity because he's not a poor man. He's a very wealthy man. But again, 
Much debate is made as to whether or not Saul was really being humble here, and I, and I believe he may have been. But how we start is not really all that relevant. It's how we finish. Amen? And you can begin off being really humble, but that doesn't mean anything if you end up prideful in the end. True humility is seen more in actions than word, and Saul sounds humble, and he may have been, but in the end, his pride is going to be his downfall. If you look at the outward appearance, we can easily be fooled by false humility. Look at verse 22 to 24. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, and he had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I had you said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh in its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat. For until this time it has been kept for you. Since I said, I, I, vis- I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Here's what happened. Saul not only told him he was going to be the one who the desire of all of Israel would fall and the king that they had cried out for, but he brought together what I believe and most commentators believe were probably 30 of the most prominent people in Israel at that time. And then he marched Saul into that group and put him in the highest seat and gave him the greatest portion that was reserved for the person of honor. So he said, Saul... You're going to be the man God uses, and let me make sure that everyone knows it. Samuel was God's man. Everyone knew it. Samuel was the prophet of God. Everyone knew it. And he marches Samuel in, or Saul in, and puts him in the spot of honor and gives him this food to eat. And again, it seems like he's a humble man to begin with. This seems like this could absolutely be the Lord. But as we know, God was their king, and no one was to take his place. And not even this good-looking guy, who probably all 30 people, we don't have the response, but may have been blown away looking at this guy. So man looks on the outward appearance, outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character. Finally, a man who appears to have respect for the Word of God. Look what happens. Verse 25, when they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. Top of the house was not, they weren't sitting on the roof. Those, if you go to Israel today, you go to Middle East today. The roof is like the patio. So people go up and they can catch the breeze. It's very hot there. They can stand up on the rooftop and talk. And that's what's happening. So he takes time to bring him up to the rooftop and personally instruct him in the things of God. It says then in verse 26, Then they arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. Verse 27, as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on. Now, if you underline stuff in your Bible, underline this. But you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Samuel is going to give Saul a lesson in the word of God. But notice when he gets it. When he's standing still. Guys, if you want to hear more from the Lord, the Bible says to be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we don't hear from God because we're so busy doing everything else under the sun we can't hear Him. 
And notice he says, send a servant away. I want one-on-one time with you to minister to you the word of God. You know what? The Lord wants one-on-one time with us to minister to us the word of God. Amen? What you get on Sunday and Wednesday ought to be gravy to what you're getting during the week at home. Spending time in his presence. So he disciples him in the word of God. Saul's instructions are clear and God's man is Samuel available to him, continues to give him direction. But Saul will choose for himself whether or not to follow God. True faith and belief is not in hearing the word of God alone, but how we respond to it. Amen? So in closing, let me go over these things really quickly. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Outward characteristics that can hide a lack of inward character. Now, I'm going to give you what will be the end result with Saul on each one of these when we get to the end of his life. So a man of wealth, good looks, and stature, head and shoulders above everyone else. Well, the truth is that when time came, he wouldn't stand up for his people. Who fought Goliath? David. Who was supposed to fight him? Saul. You're the big king, right? Hey, Mr. Seven Feet, get down there. But you know what happened? He hid, and he wouldn't fight him. So outwardly, he looks like God's man. He looks like the man they could follow. But when time came, he would not stand up for his people. He looked like a man who cared for his father and wanted to obey him. The truth is, he lacked leadership, ability, and direction. And we will see that through the rest of his life. He looks like a man who appears to both respect and honor and seek God's direction. But the truth is, he's spiritually ignorant. And everything he does, he does out of his own motive. And we will see that through the rest of his life. He will be a man that will will not do anything. Early on, he will ferment it for a short amount of time, a few years, but then he will become a man who is only concerned with his own will and his own way. Just like when he came to Samuel looking for donkeys, he's going to be a man who only comes to God when he can get what he wants. Number four, a man who appears to have God's hand upon him. The truth is, just because he's a part of God's plan doesn't make him God's man. And as we know, Samuel's going to anoint him next week, and in a few weeks, Samuel's going to come and rip the kingdom from him. He's going to say, he regrets ever making you king, and he's going to take the kingdom back. And so while he appears to have God's hand upon him, he will for a while, but in the end, it will be removed because of his disobedience. A man who appears to be humble, well, the truth is going to be revealed not in his words, but his actions, and later, his downfall is going to come because of his pride. It's pride that's going to destroy this man. And lastly, a man who appears to have respect for the word of God, well, we know that God's going to give him clear and direct commands and he's going to disobey them and disregard them and do things his own way. So man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And there's a reason why we lay hands on no man quickly. And there's a reason why we don't clamor for the person we think should be there, but we should say, Lord, you put there who you want there. Lord, we want your will. Lord, we will tell you or command of you nothing. We will say only, Lord, we don't know anything. We need your help. You you guide, you lead, you direct, you be in charge. And Lord, we want you to run, we, we want you to be the one who's our king, our savior, and our God. We can't go vote God out of office, and aren't you glad? God will always be God, no matter what happens in Washington, and we should vote because God wants us to. But you know what? Our faith, my faith, is not in electing the right person. My faith is in following the true and living God. And we need to get back to that as a country. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for these examples you give us. 
Help us, Lord, to walk in the center of your will. Help us, Lord, not to get caught up looking at things through the world's eyes, looking at the outward appearance. But, Father God, may we seek first your kingdom. May we know your heart. May we walk in sensitive, sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be more like the one you would anoint King David than the one who the people cried out for King Saul. Lord, a man after your own heart, a woman after your own heart, not promoting ourselves, but pointing people to you. Father, we so desperately want to be men and women of God. We want to be men and women that you can use. Lord, we want to be like Samuel. And that example in the text tonight, where someone says living there is an honorable person who loves God, let's go seek their counsel. Lord, I pray our neighbors would be able to say that about us. I pray our co-workers, unsaved family members would see Jesus in us. Not that we would be in any way magnified, but Lord, that you would be glorified. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.